I think of tonight's lesson and the one next week as twins preliminary to coming to the to the final study about the the reasons for reliable uh, confidence in the Bible. Tonight we're going to talk about inspiration of the scriptures. And next week, we're going to talk about the God who stands behind the scriptures. What kind of God would want to communicate in such a, an accessible and clear and complete way to his people, which helps to form our impression of the revelation that we have. But to start tonight, I want to begin with a passage that some of you will be familiar with and some maybe not from Jeremiah 28, Old Testament story. The scene is in the royal courtroom, in the throne room of the king who turned out to be the last king in Jerusalem, Zedekiah. On one hand, you have Jeremiah, the prophet. On the other hand, you have Hananiah, another prophet. They're both saying, this is what the Lord says. But they've said opposite things. In fact, Jeremiah has come into the king's court wearing a yoke made out of straps and cords it's around his neck. And he says, the Lord told me to wear this yoke because his message to you is, you need to accept the yoke of the Babylonians, surrender to them, accept that they are going to win in this conflict. Hananiah has said exactly the opposite. The backstory is that Josiah, the good king who had reigned for 31 years, had been killed by the Egyptians. So his son Jehoahaz took the throne. And he was succeeded by Jehoiakim. Jehoahaz was kind of in the crosshairs between the Assyrians to the east and the Egyptians to the south, and their power wasn't all that great, so he'd made alliances with the Egyptians. And the Egyptians turned out not to be very reliable backers. So the Assyrians came in and took control. But all of a sudden, the Assyrians got stronger, so Jehoiakim said, now's my chance. So he rebelled against the Assyrians. Only the Assyrians defeated the Egyptians, so they couldn't come to help Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was about to be conquered by the Assyrians, but instead the Assyrians got conquered by the Babylonians. Now the Babylonians took control of Jerusalem. Jehoiakim died. The Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem, and... Historians are not exactly sure whether Jehoiakim died from natural causes or not. The Bible isn't clear. But his son, Jehoiachin, took the throne, reigned three months, surrendered to the Babylonians. So Nebuchadnezzar rounded up all the royalty, all the princes, all the priests, all the craftsmen, everybody who was anybody, and sent them off to Babylon. This is what we call the exile. And the Babylonians took one of Josiah's sons, uncle of the deposed king, set him on the throne, gave him a new name, Zedekiah. So Zedekiah was a vassal king to the Babylonians until he got word that the Egyptians were strong again. So now 
he has a chance to rebel. He can form an alliance with the other vassal kings that are scattered around the Middle East. And with Egyptian backing, maybe they can throw off the Babylonians. Zedekiah needs a word from God. What to do? Jeremiah says, accept Babylonian control. See this yoke? Accept control. Hananiah says, this is what the Lord says. Throw off the yoke. In fact, he says, he took the yoke off of Jeremiah's shoulders, broke it into pieces, and said, just like I have broken this yoke, the Lord is going to break the yoke of the Babylonians. He will return the exiles, including Jehoiachin, in two years. Within two years' time, all this will happen. What's Zedekiah going to do? Two people say, this is the word of the Lord. He doesn't like Jeremiah because Jeremiah has been saying for years, the Babylonians are going to win, surrender to them, make peace, take whatever terms. So Zedekiah wanted to throw out Jeremiah's opinion to start with. And Jeremiah even says, I like Hananiah's words. I wish that's what was going to happen. But that's not what's going to happen. And so Jeremiah has this to say in, in uh, sort, of, sort of giving us some guidance about what voices to listen to. Because who are you going to pay attention to when both sides are quoting Scripture, quoting the words of God? Jeremiah says, Listen to what I have to say in your hearing and the hearing of all people. From early times, the prophets who preceded you and me have prophesied war, disaster, and plague against many countries and great kingdoms. But the prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as one truly sent by God only if his predictions come true. Won't that be kind of late for Zedekiah? In other words, he's saying, events will prove which one of us is telling the truth, but what's Zedekiah going to do now? Look at what Jeremiah said. He points to consistency of content. The prophets in the past who spoke from God warned about disastrous punishment for sin. The situation hasn't changed. Jeremiah is saying the warnings about disaster and punishment connected with sin are the consistent message of God. If somebody says something else, you're going to have to wait till it turns out to see who is right. Consistency with God's revealed truth from the past. Just a hundred years earlier than this, Micah, the prophet, had said, Jerusalem will be like a plowed field, and the Temple Mount will be overgrown with briars. And Micah's words were accepted as the words of God. In fact, just two chapters earlier in Jeremiah, Jeremiah had been released from a death sentence because some of the elders quoted Micah. Jeremiah's message was consistent. Hananiah's was not. And as it turned out, just after this scene, 
Hananiah died. Zedekiah surrendered after a period of rebellion. He saw his son slaughtered in his presence and then his eyes were put out. So the last thing he saw was the death of his sons. How different is that from the times we live in? Is the Bible scripture? Is the Quran scripture? Is the Bhagavad Gita scripture? Is the Book of Mormon scripture? What about L. Ron Hubbard's writings in Scientology? Is that scripture? Has God spoken? Has He spoken everywhere? And if we're going to say the Bible, as we have it, is the Word of God, then what claim are we making? Look at page two. Let's sing our song. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to you He has said? who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. I, I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my gracious omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I cause thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for <coughs> will be with thee thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials I cothway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. In down to old age all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. 
What we're talking about is inspiration. English word translating the idea that God moved human beings to speak and then to write His will for His people, giving guidelines to the path they should follow so that they could maintain a relationship with Him. The word prophet means primarily someone who speaks for God, not mostly somebody who anticipates the future, but someone who speaks for God to God's people. And most frequently, what the prophets called for from the people was repent, because they were going away from God. The root idea of repent is turn, turn back. So they were calling people back to the way of God, the promise, the covenant that they had made with Him at the beginning in, at Sinai. The 20th century was an age of skepticism. It started in the 19th century, but the 20th century, on a popular level, people became skeptical of the idea that God can send His message in a reliable form to human beings. And so, for somebody to be inspired meant, oh, they were compelled to paint a masterpiece or to write a novel or to compose a symphony, that, that kind of inspiration. I attended a conference a month ago in Baltimore in which one of the speakers said that inspiration is the fuel for creativity. And creativity is the way to live a meaningful life. Inspiration. I picked up a secondhand book a few years ago, and it sat on my shelf until this summer, and I got it down and read it. The title is The Christian Renaissance, The Influence of the Bible and the Dogmas of the Church on the Works of Shakespeare, Dante, Goethe, and Other Poets, written by a professor of English at uh, Leeds University in Great Britain. Well, he's, his expertise is in literature, those poets that I just read and some others. He suggested that you should read the New Testament as poetry. And that, in fact, if you read the parables of Jesus as poetry, it gives you a whole new view. Well, of course it does. But hear what he says. The book extends my work beyond Shakespearean interpretation to other great poets and the New Testament. A fresh reading of the New Testament and Christianity emerges as well as a new view of poetry. And so when he deals with the parables of Jesus, he says, before you draw morals from his parables, I read that and I thought, he thinks a parable is a fable. Aesop's fables teach morals. That's not what Proverbs do. But this guy says that uh, Jesus' parables may be read as poetry before we draw morals from them, and we shall do well to tune our minds to their poetic quality. That's what the secular world thinks inspiration is. That is not, however, what the Bible presents as inspiration or the idea that God spoke His will through human beings. It was something very different. 
it is the God of creation who pays such close attention to his human creatures that he will choose certain human beings to deliver his will to the people in a form that they can appreciate. So Moses was the one called by God to speak the covenant to the people at Sinai and call them into being as his people. Think about, uh, we talked about this briefly last week, but I want to approach it a little bit differently. When, when, when we have a public reading of Scripture in worship, sometimes you will have somebody say something like, hear the word of the Lord, or this is the word of the Lord. And then they read Scripture. But what we do so often in a worship service is treat it as if it is a human word being spoken by a human being, and we don't give it that much attention, do we? What is the Bible? What is Scripture to us as people of faith, as the community of faith, especially in the setting of worship? What is it that is being spoken? And if it's God's Word, what do we do with it? We reveal a great deal about the misplaced understanding of our faith in our body language, our physical posture in the presence of Scripture being read. Our faith says the Bible is the Word of God. So what does the Bible contain? Consider that the New Testament has only two passages. The whole New Testament has only two passages that talk about the nature of inspiration, and neither one of those talks about the nuts and bolts of it. One is from Paul, one is from Peter. They say very much the same thing, but with a slightly different emphasis. You're familiar with both of them. Second Peter or Second Timothy 3:15 through 17 says, "You have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture, what is that? The Old Testament that, that Paul was referring to. It's the books of Moses and the prophets and the writings, miscellaneous collections, sometimes called the Psalms. But the focus in Paul's statement is where? It's on the origin of these words. All Scripture is breathed out by God. The English versions have chosen inspired of God. But it's the origin. Where does it come from? If it's Scripture, it comes from God. To be from God is to be Scripture. The two are synonymous. Scripture is God's words because it comes from God Himself. And that way, God's people become 
completely, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's Word encourages and it instructs, but sometimes it rebukes and corrects because sometimes that's what we need. Which means if all we ever hear from the Bible is positive, then there's something missing. But also if all we ever hear from the Bible is judgment and condemnation, something is missing. Because Paul says it completely equips the people of God. Peter says very much the same thing. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. He's anticipating the time when there will be no more eyewitnesses. Remember last week we talked a fair amount about the importance of eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus. Well, Peter knows the eyewitnesses won't always be around. And so he connects the testimony of the eyewitnesses with the anticipation of the prophets. And he says, we have the words of the prophets made more sure. How could it be that people who were speaking hundreds of years before the time of Jesus could speak so accurately about his birth and his ministry and his death and resurrection? How could that be? Except that as Peter says, these men who spoke were carried along by God's Holy Spirit. They did not speak from their own private interpretation. It's not inspiration like the poets and the artists and the composers because it isn't human. It's the divine action of God's Holy Spirit. Think about some of the rest of the literature of the New Testament. If Scripture is inspired, if the New Testament is Scripture, then it is inspired, it comes from God. But what does that look like? There was a time in Christianity when a dictation theory was popular. God gave the prophets, the writers of Scripture, every single word in exactly the order and even, even just exactly like it came from God, it came out of their mouths, so they were nothing more than just tape recorders. Now that is the, the theory of the Quran, the Muslim book of Scriptures. The angel Gabriel spoke to Muhammad exactly the eternal message that was in heaven with God from eternity and Muhammad is supposed to have expressed it and somebody wrote it down. And so the Quran is word for word, exactly like King God, even down to the punctuation. And that message is supposed to be consistent with every other revelation God has given. But the Muslims believe that God gave the law through Moses and the gospel through Jesus and the Psalms through David and they aren't consistent. So there's, there's a challenge with that. And even as you read different parts of the New Testament, it doesn't, the vocabulary is different. Uh, some of the writers, Peter, who we were just talking about, uses a lot of imperative verbs. You know, do this, don't do that, here's what you do. Just, just lots of those, one after the other. That, that's, not, that's not the way Paul writes. That's not the narratives of the Gospels. So personalities come through. I didn't really realize this until I took uh, 
Dr. Lewis for the minor prophets, and he pointed out that Amos, Amos just doesn't have much patience with anybody. Amos just is cut and dried, and he just tells you this is what's going to happen, and for three sins and for four, God's going to wipe you out, and he just goes down the list. And, and, and I mean, Amos says, I didn't want to be a prophet. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I'm a shepherd and a sheep and a fig tree dresser, and and because they were being rough on him, and Amos didn't like it, and it comes through in his prophecy. John, on the other hand, talks about the love of God. God loved the world, love one another. This is how we know what love is. If God loved us, we should love each other. So, so their vocabulary, their personalities are different, their history is different, and their culture comes through in their messages. So it isn't dictation. There's a human element, their vocabulary, their time, the problems that the people of the times were facing. So Luke and John, two of the gospel writers, have a purpose statement, and it sounds like a very rational human purpose. The beginning of Luke, first four verses, Luke says, many others have Sit, have, have sat down to write an account about Jesus. And so I, after doing careful research, want to write an orderly account so that you, Theophilus, may know for sure. Sounds like a very noble reason, but it's a human reason. John, at the end of his gospel, says Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in His name. Reasons add to the conclusion, Jesus is the Messiah, so you can be saved. Well, that sounds like a very logical, rational, human reason for writing. But that doesn't mean that God wasn't guaranteeing that what was written was accurate. The letters of Paul are written to specific people who were confronting specific challenges in their city, in their culture. And Paul writes as someone who knows them well and they know him to give them advice and guidance. So 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I've received a letter. And so he addresses the concerns from that letter. Now, concerning the things that you've written to me about, then he goes down the topics that they had written to him about his correspondence. But the Holy Spirit of God was guiding the words just as he guided the words of the prophets in the Old Testament. John, 1 John says he's writing in order to include the recipients in the fellowship that we have with the Father. Because there were false teachers. Some had left the fellowship. Others were no doubt deciding what they should do. So he's writing. It's a human reason. I want to encourage you to stay in fellowship. But it's undergirded by the Holy Spirit. Jude in the little one chapter letter near the end of the New Testament, was so moved to write what he did write, he says he changed from what he was going to write. He says, I was going to write to you about, about the church, about our precious faith, but 
I've got a right to you to contend earnestly for this faith that's been once for all delivered because these false teachers are dangerous. So it's, it's somebody who has a, a pastoral heart for Christians that he knew who needed their faith shored up. But the guidance of the Holy Spirit is what guarantees that it's God's words in human language and words. And that's what sets the Bible apart. Because the content of the New Testament in particular is written to people who were facing a crisis of faith, false teachers, persecution, questions about which of Two doctrines were the right version. And those things aren't the same from century to century. So the Quran addresses history and concerns within a relatively brief span of time, roughly 20 to 30 years of the life of one man, Muhammad. The Bible covers a period of 1,500 years, written by 40 different authors in three different languages in four different cultures, most of whom had no contact with any of the others. They couldn't compare notes. And yet it's one message, consistent in every part, with the same concept of God, the same problem, which is sin, and the same way to address that problem, which is only through God's plan and His grace. How could that happen? How could it be that you could have 40 authors, 1,500 years, three different languages, so much geography and culture, and still have one message, one consistent message. Two weeks from tonight, we'll talk about the ways that the Bible is unique among the, the claimed scriptures of the world. And, and that's, that's a, uh, a preview. That's, that's a little hint about uh, what's coming. But what would you like to uh, add as a question or raise as a point before we proceed further? Hello? <clears throat> Very true. Yeah, that just history is one of those places where the Bible stands apart from all the others. Well, uh, consider this. If the infinite source of all being wanted to communicate his will to his creatures. Don't you think he would do it in the most direct way possible that was the most available to the most people? Directly and open? There have been those within Christian circles who tried to say the real essence of the message is a hidden secret kind of thing that you've got to come to us to find out what 
what the real message is. But that certainly isn't the way the Bible presents itself, nor is that the way Jesus commissioned His first followers. Spread this word as broadly as you possibly can. It isn't the vocabulary of a specific human language that is the key. Not Arabic or Hebrew or Greek or Latin. It, that's not it. It is that the source is the infinite mind of God. And what makes a writing, a message, Scripture is that it comes from God. The title of the book that started this whole thing is God Breathed, which is the more literal rendering of inspired. But what we are claiming is these words come from the mind of God Himself and they contain the will of God. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible, great miracles are always accompanied by a human spoken word. The plagues in Egypt were certainly stupendous events. But the only way to connect them with the people of God under Moses is because Moses and presumably Aaron spoke from God. And then when that record took written form, this was the history of the people of God, their origin, their beginning, what the connection with God is and why the covenant is so important. And because the people forgot that message is why they continued to have trouble throughout their history. Because the measure of faithfulness is what they had agreed to to start with. John calls the miracles of Jesus that he records in his gospel, seven of them, signs. Think about the meaning of that word. What is a sign? If you come to an intersection and there's a hexagonal, eight-sided, red sign on a post that has a four-letter word written on it, and you don't know English, but you know what that sign stands for, what will you probably do? Stop. What is a sign? Is the purpose for posting that red eight-sided sign on a post so you'll stop and say, wow, that engineer was really good. Those angles are precise. The lines are straight. And that paint machine that painted that red on that sign really did a good job. There are no runs, drips, or errors. Isn't that what Johnny Bench used to say on that commercial? Is that what a sign is for? You're supposed to admire the sign? Sign communicates information. It may tell us something to do or not do. It may be a warning sign. It may just be information that we need about which road to take when we're traveling on the interstate. 
The sign was the miracle. But if you see the blind able to see or the lame able to walk or the dead rise, you may be so overwhelmed by that that you don't look any farther. And for John, these were signs. What were they signs of? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that you may believe and have life in His name. The miracles of the Bible have a human being to speak with the authority of God to explain what the significance is. The Word of God tells us what God is doing in the world and what we are to do in response. It gives meaning and direction to life because it is the Word of God. For example, you remember the, the description of the scene in Exodus of the people gathering around Mount Sinai? And you remember what they saw and heard and felt? Thunder, earthquake, volcano, smoke, fire, trumpet. What was their response? They were terrified. They said, Moses, don't let us talk to God. You talk to God for us. The only thing that meant to them was terror. Moses' explanation, his message is this. This is Exodus 20, verse 20. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. This is not to obliterate people or terrify people. It's to keep you from sinning. That's what the law is about. God came into the world in the form of His Son taking on human flesh to communicate what? What's the significance of that? So that you may have what? Life. The reason Jesus came was not just to be a miracle worker and not just to be another prophet. He was to show us the love of God. So that we might have life in His name. So it isn't surprising to read near the end of the first chapter of Mark after Jesus has spent the day healing people, including Peter's mother-in-law. Early in the morning, He was out in a lonely place praying, and, and when they finally found him, they said, Master, everybody's looking for you. Come on, it's time to get busy. Let's go heal some more people. And Jesus said, let's go to another village so I can preach. That's why I came. For the ministry of Jesus, it was preaching that took precedence over the miracles, and I suspect that for us, we would rather see the miracles. but it's the spoken message that was most important for Jesus. 
So, what are we talking about? The Bible, the Word of God, inspiration. When we say the Bible is the Word of God, we are saying this is where you can find the character of God. Next week. What we must do to rectify what has gone wrong. How can we reestablish a relationship with the one who made us? What does this call to come into relationship with him sound like? We are saying that the Bible is where you find that information and not the Quran and not the Bhagavad Gita and not the, Hindu, the Buddhist Tripitaka and not the writings of L. Ron Hubbard. Inspiration is not feeling a strong motivation, a passionate call to paint a picture, write a symphony, or, or create a poem. It's different. The Bible is where you get the accurate expression of who God is and what he wants from us. And that makes all the difference. Howard Marshall uh, wrote uh, an entire book on biblical inspiration. He says, the doctrine of inspiration is a declaration that the scriptures have their origin in God. It is not and cannot be an explanation of how God brought them into being. Some of those things we don't know. I don't know if Isaiah heard God's voice or if a thought formed in his mind that he recognized as being from God. The book of Acts records some speeches from Jesus to Paul. So did Paul hear human speech? I don't know. But what we're saying is scriptures come from God himself. So we're saying that the original message that is contained in the New Testament, in the Bible, but in the New Testament particularly, was completely correct and completely as God intended it. The reliability of our copies of Scripture 2,000 years later is really the other part of the question. Can we rely on the version of Scripture as we have it? Howard Marshall says, no translation is absolutely accurate and no commentary gets every detail of the meaning correct and since we don't have a copy signed by Paul or John, none of the original documents have survived, then that makes the question very important. How reliable is the copy we have? Because if that's the basis of our faith, if we're saying this is God's word, we better be sure it's reliable. And so... In the last week, session seven, we'll talk about the tests of reliability. The inspiration of Scripture, however, 
is a starting point, and I challenge all of us as people of faith to think very deeply about what that means. If, if we are saying that in this printed volume of English words, we have words that originate with God, then can we really treat this book the same as we do all other books just because it's in the same form? I don't mean that you do things like I've heard of people who won't ever let another book rest on top of their Bible. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the content. If we continue to treat it as a resource book that you take off the shelf when you want an answer to a question, then put it back till the next question. Instead of it becoming something that becomes internal to us, and we're missing the point. Next week, we'll talk about the God who stands behind the Bible. Hope you can be here.